Hey guys, welcome back to Silicon Street, a podcast where we explore the intersection of finance, technology, and entrepreneurship by providing college students and young professionals with insight into these ever-evolving fields and uncover the secrets to success from distinguished industry leaders. My name is Michael Cutler, and today I'm joined by my co-host, James Barham. If you're new to the podcast, be sure to follow us on Spotify and LinkedIn, as we will be posting each week. And definitely check out our existing platform of over 70 podcasts. Today, we're excited to welcome Jeff Bokan to the show. Jeff is a seasoned venture capitalist and an executive with over 20 years of experience in the tech and digital media sectors. He is currently a partner at Okapi Venture Capital, where he sources, negotiates, and manages early stage funds, and is a board member of or observer of 10 of Okapi's active companies. Prior to joining Okapi, Jeff was a senior vice president of Mophie, a company that produces mobile phone accessories and batteries. He was also a managing director at venture capital firm Beringia, where he sourced and managed investments for 35 portfolio companies and served on 22 corporate boards. Additionally, he earned a BA in government and sociology from the University of Notre Dame and an MBA from the University of Virginia. So without further ado, Jeff, welcome to the show. How have you been doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. It's great seeing you both, uh, Michael and James. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for coming on and we're excited to have you and uh, get some insight into the venture capital space. Um, so I guess uh, just to, to hop right into it, we we're wondering if you could tell us kind of what expi- inspired you to become a, a venture capitalist and how you got started in the field. Yeah. Um, well, there wasn't actually, my, my story isn't a moment of divine inspiration or anything. It was I'm kind of an accidental venture capitalist. Um, and some of the background, as you mentioned, I was a government major at, at Notre Dame. So I actually wanted to be a politician coming out of college. And I worked on Capitol Hill for several years after undergrad. But after realizing I didn't want to make a career out of politics, um, I decided to go to business school as a means of transitioning into something else and definitely picking up some other skills because I had, you know, I don't know if people do that, do politics have much in the way of skills. Uh, I had never even opened Microsoft Excel prior to prior to going to business school. So um, I definitely needed to go to B school. And um, so while I was there, I got into um, entrepreneurship. Um, I was really interested in startups and what they were doing. And I ended up working um, at Honest Tea, which is an organic, freshly brewed iced tea. Uh, maybe you guys have had it or had the Honest Kids juice boxes when you were little. Um, but I was one of the first employees at Honest Tea. It, it had just started when I was at business school. And I had invited the founder down to the business school to speak at our school. I was the president of the Entrepreneur Club. And uh, he came down and that conversation turned into an internship. And I got the startup bug working at Honest Tea. Um, I helped launch the product west of the Mississippi um, during my summer between first and second year of business school and just was really psyched to work at a startup. Um, my wife was at law school at the same time. She had an opportunity to get a job in London, England with her law firm uh, to be an American working in the British office of this American law firm. So she had this awesome like expat package, great job opportunity. And I was at this struggling startup. Honestly, it just started then. It didn't have venture funding. It was bootstrapped. It was uh, not obvious it was going to be successful. So we decided to make the move to move to London for her job. And uh, I thought, all right, we'll move to London and I'll just get a job at a startup when we're over there. So we get to London. I'm interviewing at different startups, a venture backed one in particular. And as part of the interview process, I had to interview with the venture capitalist that backed the company. And it was a firm called Saffron Hill Ventures. So I met with that partner. And uh, that conversation or that interview 
turned into them saying, look, rather than you work for this portfolio company, we want you to work for us. So that's how I got into venture capital. I thought that would be incredible. I was like, oh my God, I never thought that'd even be possible for me, but uh, I would absolutely love to do it. I'll work my ass off if you give me the chance. And uh, I got into venture capital that way, right? In, in the year 2000, early 2001, I started on with them uh, in London. It was an early stage focus firm. And uh, that's how I got into the VC business. So I wasn't trying to really, I was trying to just work at a venture backed startup and it turned into a job in venture. And once I started doing it, I loved it. And I've been doing it for the bulk of the last 20 plus years. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So sorry, it's, it's not a short answer to what's a pretty simple question. <laughs> no. no, that's awesome. Now it seems that, that every guest we talked to uh, didn't have really a, a clear path and uh, didn't really have a clear vision of, of what they wanted to do and kind of just ended up in these cool roles. So that's, that's awesome that it, uh, it worked out well for you. Um, so I guess, I guess uh, to, to talk about what you're doing now, um, mm -hmm. We'd love to to hear more about Okapi Partners um, and maybe specifically your guys' strategy and investment focus and maybe what mm -hmm. also differentiates them from maybe larger competitors um, and, and household names like Excel or Sequoia. Yep. Yeah, so we're an early stage, we're a traditional early stage uh, venture firm. We're focused on software-driven companies, so we're doing kind of real tech. We're not doing life sciences um, or healthcare-related stuff. It's um, software-driven companies. It's mostly business-to-business -business solutions, uh, fintech companies, and e-commerce. And our firm's had a lot of success in cybersecurity as well. And that's been an area of, um, I'll talk about later, but some of my best deal has been in the cyberspace as well. Um, our firm's biggest uh, investment is a company called CrowdStrike, which is a big uh, you know, uh, NASDAQ-listed business. Um, and uh, we focus on companies... Uh, in underserved markets. Uh, so this is how we differentiate a little bit from uh, Sequoia and Excel. So, you know, I'm in Newport Beach, California. Um, over 90% of our investments are in Southern California between basically LA and San Diego. Um, it's actually a really large market. There's nearly 30 million people that live just in that 200 plus mile radius. Uh, so there's a lot of innovation and opportunity here and there aren't as many VCs relative to the uh, number of opportunities here in this market. So that's a big area of focus for us. And then we um, also cover other underserved markets like the Midwest. Part of my venture career has uh, been in the Midwest. So I still have a lot of connections uh, in that market. I went to Notre Dame too. So like a lot of my Notre Dame classmates ended up creating some deal flow for me there in the Midwest still. Um, so that's another area that we like to invest in. Um, so we focus on underserved markets. And then the last way we differentiate from some of the really big firms is we have um, a high touch, high conviction approach to our seed portfolio. And what I mean by that is, so a lot of seed, there's kind of two main strategies you have as an early stage investor. You have one that's kind of pejoratively called spray and pray, where you basically make a ton of investments in a, a lot of small bets in a lot of different things. And um, which is a totally valid strategy. It can, it can work. It can be a little bit hard to execute effectively, which we can talk about later. But we take a different approach where we have a much narrower portfolio. That's the like the high conviction part. So we make more concentrated bets into a smaller portfolio. So some venture funds may have a 50 to 60 company portfolio. We've got like 20. And, um, and then we have this high touch element where we lead just about every single investment that we make. Uh, so we're you know setting the pricing terms. We're on the board of most every company that we invest in. 
And we are really involved in the first three years of helping the management teams kind of get from a couple people and the early phases of a product to a business that has likely hundreds of customers, um, tens of employees, and are, they're in a position to really start scaling. And that's where we specialize. And um, with our high level of involvement, we just have a higher success rate of getting our companies, you know, kind of graduating to that later stage, which some of the other big firms, they kind of write a check, they're not too involved, or they put someone really junior on the investment that's maybe not contributing a whole lot. And they just let the companies kind of fend for themselves. And if it works, they'll give them more money. And if it doesn't, they just cut their losses quickly. That's a totally valid approach. And some firms have done awesome doing it, but that's not what we do. We are really involved um, uh, early in the in the process. So, you know, the founders that can be more attracted to us are the ones who are looking for some of that um, assistance. Maybe you know, it's first-time founders um, or it's folks that are first-time uh, maybe they've been part of a leadership team before, but the first time in the CEO role and um, they're looking for some of that extra help uh, early on. So that's what we do. And it's, it's worked pretty well for us. Yeah, absolutely. No, that, the high conviction and, and high involvement approach sounds, sounds very interesting and, and unique. And I was, I was hoping that you could maybe expand just a little bit on um, how, how you approach this collaboration with the, the portfolio, your portfolio companies and maybe what mm -hmm. kind of, help or strategies you, um, you use to, to support and help them grow? Yeah. Well, I mean, we try to help them in all kinds. Everyone needs different things. So there's not like a cookie cutter approach for us with the companies. Some some of the founders we back are, you know, they're maybe in their 40s. They have a fair amount of corporate experience. Uh, maybe they're working at bigger companies or larger startups. Um, and this is kind of their first time in the roles. And some of those folks need a lot less uh, they're just more equipped, I guess, to kind of build and run a business. Uh, and then we have some you know, younger founders that are in their early 20s, and this may even be their first job. Um, and they have never managed anybody before, and like their needs are totally different. So, you know, we, I, the major ways that VCs help, you know, like my one partner has this phrase of like, in, uh, he calls it insight, intros, and, uh, uh, and ultimately capital, but it, it's, you know, like we, we, we try to offer some strategic, strategic guidance. We make connections for the companies, either through you know, biz dev connections where whatever relative industry that they're in, we help them win new customers because we have relationships at the customers that they're targeting, uh, or maybe channel partners. If they're looking for a firm to help sell their product, we can help open doors and create channel opportunities for them. Um, and then one of the big areas of, of making uh, insight or intros is on the capital front, helping them raise money. Um, and that's where VCs, early stage VCs, especially if they're good, that's where they're the most helpful is helping those startups secure the second round of capital. The first rounds, I wouldn't say the, it's probably the easiest to raise. It is the easiest to race. It's the second one is harder. Um, to race, you know, early on, you're kind of selling the dream, you're selling the sizzle as we call it. And, you know, the second round, you've got to sell the stake. There's like, you, you will have, you have to have proven what you've done and get people excited about it. There's metrics to look at. There's stuff to dive into. It's not just a really convincing visionary founder and a good idea and an interesting market opportunity. It's like, all right, they spent, you know, a million, two million bucks the last year or two. Like, what have they done with that? And um, it hasn't, you know, a lot of companies don't always spend that money well, or things don't go quite as they expect, or it takes longer than expected. 
So it, it gets harder to raise that second round of capital. And that's where VCs can really be helpful, mainly just through making the introductions. I mean, I, I've been doing this for 20 years. I've served on a lot of boards, as you mentioned in the intro. So I've got to partner with a lot of VCs before. So, you know, when I send an email to someone that I've done a deal with previously, you know, you, it's getting a response. They're going to consider it closely because they've worked with me and know that how I operate. And um, you know, a lot of the money that we end up raising for our company usually comes from people that we've interacted with in the past. So that's really important um, when founders are just trying to do that on their own or with, as I mentioned, some of the passive investors that write a check, but don't really get too involved. They kind of are leaving those founders to figure all that out for themselves. And that's really hard. And then the last area, I mean, there's a ton of things that we do. I won't bore you with all of it. I mean, if I were to just go through what I've done this week, <laughs> I'd probably take up the rest of our time because we, I do a lot for the portfolio companies, um, but recruitment is a big area that we get involved with. So especially at the early stages, I mean, when we first back a company, there's usually just a couple people. And so they're going to need to build out a team for things to work out. And they don't want just like any random off the street, like you need to, if you're going to build a great company, you need to have awesome people. And so attracting high quality talent to startups isn't as easy as it sounds. I mean, just as you know, I mentioned in my personal situation, you know, like I left this, a startup, a prom, you know, what ended up being an awesome startup to, um, you know, cause like the job prospects for my wife were better than what they looked like for me at the startup. And they didn't have any venture backers at that time. So like the funding of that company was very uncertain going forward. So when we get involved with recruitment, a big part that we're uh, imparting onto uh, these, uh, the, the people we're targeting is like, oh, you know, here's our firm. We've backed all these successful companies. We intend on backing this company for a while. Like this is about as secure of a job as you get in a startup, <laughs> at least, you know, where there's two years plus visibility of cash. And uh, that's really important for recruiting talent. So we get involved with that. And then the last piece, I said that was the last, but this other one, which is important, and this is the email I was dealing with right before getting on with you guys, is around exits. So um, you know, when it comes time to sell the companies, and we're usually very involved in that process, especially if it's an earlier exit uh, for the company. Uh, but like this CEO just sent me an email. He got a due diligence request list from this larger company that's looking at acquiring their business. And he's like, hey, like, help me figure out like what is appropriate to respond to these guys or not. And in some cases, like I, I've been doing the early versions of the conversation with this pot potential acquirer and it's kind of now progressed to them doing formal diligence, but you know, we can play a role especially, um, and it can help the management a lot to have the board sometimes manage some of those M and a conversations uh, where we can position things more aggressively to get an optimal outcome for the shareholders where, and then, Kind of, you know, be the bad cop basically, and then let the CEO who's going to have to work with those guys later, you know, be the be the good cop and have a good relationship post deal. So um, there's a ton that we do as board members uh, or investors, um, but that's a little sampling. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's it sounds like you got your plate full with with all that you do for for these companies. But I was kind of wondering, like, you have this high conviction approach, like you these companies you invest in, you you really believe in, um, but also having like this high this involvement, high involvement um, mm -hmm. approach as well. Do you ever see yourself um, investing in companies that you have, that have a vision, but um, you kind of go in with that mindset of, of making significant op operational changes, or do you kind of only invest in companies that, that you have a vision that you're on board with? It's really the latter there where we are. I mean, again, we're, we're really early stage investors. So um, 
there are always holes in the team and in terms of operational changes that there's a lot that needs to, it's not so much change, but just be built out. It's not like we need to undo things. It's just a lot of things aren't, you know, there's not a VP of marketing or there's not, you know, someone, sometimes there's not even a proper salesperson. It's the founder that's doing all the sales, him or herself. Um, so things need to be built out. So what we really hone in on is the vision of the founder. Um, and it's not just the vision because that, that's kind of easy, it, it, but it's really the um, depth of understanding of the customer. Usually it's the customer pain point that they're trying to solve where they're either coming at it from a unique perspective where it's like, I know that there's a better way to do this or that they themselves experience the problem. And they've been in the shoes of the customer before and they understand the environment that those companies are working within. They understand the adjacent um, technologies that are being used and they know what needs to be built and slotted in to make the workflow of that customer um, work easily and have the least amount of friction to get adopted. And um, so I look for that depth of understanding. So it's one, like a really clear vision of like this, in, this industry needs to function differently. And I know what that looks like. And I know what needs to be done to get it there. And if they have that depth of understanding, we will lean into those folks um, and back them on their vision on that. And then iterate along the way. Because honestly, no, never, no one ever has it figured out completely early on. Um, so that's the last part we look in a founder is like, you know, are they where they don't feel like they they have it figured out perfectly. Like they they know that like, all right, I have a viewpoint, but I'm going to take in new data all the time and, and ha be willing to change my mind as new information comes in, as opposed to being arrogant enough, basically, where they think they've got it all figured out no matter what and ignoring all the information. So we try to probe on that in the diligence phase, you know, about like even what ask, bug, asking people, like what have you learned or changed even in the last six months, three months, um, in your approach from what you thought you, you needed to do before then. So um, yeah, we'll look for those things with founders, but back, back in the visionary folks, we're unlike a private equity firm or some of these groups that come in, they're like, okay, we're the operational experts and we know how to run this business better uh, or that we can optimize things here. It's so early stage. There's no, that's not where you drive and add the value. You are creating the value and bringing that initial vision um, into reality and getting that going and um, penetrating a new market and getting things going from there. The optimization happens years later. Absolutely. Thank you for that clarification there on, on y'all's role. Um, so to shift gears a little bit, as we mentioned earlier, you're a board member um, for a lot of companies and a board observer for some others. So I was wondering if you could explain what that role looks like uh, being a board member of a VC funded company and then mm -hmm. kind of some of those responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. So um, on the board, so these are smaller companies. So it's not like a big public company with 20 people on the board. These boards are small. They're usually like three to five people in the early phases. So the main, I mean, honestly, the most important role and it's, it's boring, um, but it's governance is kind of how it's phrased as, but it honestly, it's just making sure that the management teams are abiding by the rules on behalf of all the shareholders. So that's the main role as a board member is you have this fiduciary duty. And that's a phrase that maybe you guys have heard, but gets thrown around from time to time. But this fiduciary duty is what like the board members have to do. They need to look out for all shareholders. They're not there to look out after their own interest or to protect the management team. They have to protect the whole business, every single shareholder. So as soon as you step on a board, like that's your number one job is 
fiduciary duty and making sure like what's happening is being done correctly. Uh, I mean, I'm, you know, like things like FTX or in the news where they like, they didn't have a board and it was like a total, you know, shit show. And like things were going, were all over the place because there was no one watching the team. And like, that's the real disaster scenario of what can happen when there's no governance. So first and foremost, like you just need to be involved and make sure the team is doing what they say they're going to do that you're um, going through the numbers and keeping track. And it's like, yes, this is reflective of what's happening in the business, um, that the resources they do have are being spent as they were intended to. I mean, it's funny, even in the investment docs, like there's this language of, and a lot of founders ask me like, why do you have this in there? But where the board or, or an investor has consent over, you know, how the money is, is spent in the business up to a certain level. And it's honestly an, an example I use sometimes. It's like, look, I didn't give you a million dollars for you to go and like open five Starbucks restaurants. Like you, you said, you're going to build this software. and That's what we need to make sure you're going to do. And any, if you're going to make any capital expenditure or go out and buy a Ferrari or whatever, like we need consent that that's going to happen, not going to happen. So, um, you know, having governance and staying on top of that is first and foremost. Um, but then from there, it's like strategic guidance, you know, a lot, like I've been doing this for a long time. So helping companies with um, figuring out how they want to go to market, you know, how to reach customers, we'll give advice there and hopefully have, have them avoid potholes. There's tactical things that we help with. It can, like I was just doing this the other day, just working on pricing. And that's a real challenge with a lot of startups. They've built something new. They're usually in a market where, you know, there hasn't been something in existence, like with what they're providing. So they're not sure how to price it. They're like, I don't know how much people would want to pay for this. So like really, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs always price things too low because they're like, I just want to make sure people say yes. But, you know, working with them on pricing plans, you know, obviously a lot of times encouraging them to um, move prices up, but think through prices, mo pricing models. But like those are an example of very tactical things that we do. I mentioned business development earlier, you know, making a lot of introductions for the companies, helping them reach more customers and partners. Um, and we talk about raising money. That's a really big thing. The board members can be involved with helping them raise capital. Um, we talk about exits, M&A involvement. Um, we get involved there. Recruitment, one we touched on, that's a big one. And then um, honestly, the, the the last one is is maybe one of the most valuable. And it's really kind of managed. It's being the counselor or like broker between the founders. Uh, or just like dealing with some of the personnel issues that happen within the company. Yeah, it, it's not always startups are really stressful. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes a lot of the founding teams end up having a lot of issues with each other. And you end up really kind of being a, a like a broker or the negotiator, someone who's kind of smooth, trying to smooth things out just between the management team. Or if they can't be smoothed out, being involved with the process of, of kicking one of the other founders out of the business uh, when, when that's warranted um, or when it comes to that, when the people are just like at. You know, where they're at a point where they can't work together anymore. And um, so the board will get involved there. And then I guess the last piece, and this is, un, you know, it's, it happens rarely, um, but I've had to do it a few times, um, is when a board member sometimes has to step in as the CEO or, or into a key management role because of, it's not so much getting you know, fired or kicked out of the business, but like if someone dies or is, you know, has a severe health issue, I had to do that last fall when one of my CEOs was hospitalized for two months. And um, yeah, as a board member that sometimes there's no one to step in and help run the business. And I've had a CEO die on me at one point, I had a heart attack and, you know, I was interim CEO for several 
months and, until we got a new one in. But sometimes board members have to step in and do that. So it can be a real range of stuff. Um, and I mean, and honestly, not every board member does that. Some some are call them the sandwich eaters. They just show up at the board meeting, eat the sandwiches that are there for lunch, and they leave, and they don't really do anything else. I'm most, there are a lot of boards where there's people like that. Um, but as the VC investors, the the better ones are getting more involved and um, trying to help where they can. Sure. Um, just kind of curious: is there ever any tension between being an investor and looking to generate returns for your LPs, and then? being a board member. So really more concerned on the operational side. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. The, the, the tension is definitely there. That's a great question, but that's where you really need to talk about this fiduciary duty that that comes first and foremost when you're a board member. So um, that's what you have to look out after first. And, and there are deals where uh, especially it happens in subsequent funding rounds and especially it's in situations where the companies aren't doing very well. So let's say they raise money at, I don't know, call it 10 million, let's use better numbers. They've, they've raised money at some point, like 25 million valuation and um, of, of the business and shares were priced at that value and things haven't worked out. In fact, they're going really poorly, but, but there's, you know, there is an opportunity for things to get turned around. You know, it's like, all right, the three things that we tried to do failed there's one other thing that's working. We're going to lean into this one thing and we still think we can, you know, develop an interesting business on this one thing. And we're going to raise money to do that. Well, you know, our, the subsequent money that comes in, isn't going to come in at a $25 million valuation because all the stuff that was supposed to happen didn't happen. So there, you guys, I don't know if you've talked with other um, uh, people that have been on board uh, on your pod, but um, there'll be these down rounds as they call it, where like the next round of valuation is lower. And when that happens, there's a whole cascade of terms that end up changing for the prior investors. One, you know, the share price is dropping, but sometimes the preference, uh, the rights of some of the older shareholders can get changed. And that's where a lot of the friction happens because people don't like having things taken from them or having, or having their values come down. And that's where you end up as a new, as an investor really needing to balance things. Cause like you're, on one hand, you're writing a check and maybe even determining the terms of this new down round. But at the same time, you're a board member and need to look after all the shareholders and, you know, and people that might be accusing you that you're screwing them uh, on the new terms. Um, so it, there is a lot of friction with that and it's hard to manage. Uh, but and one thing that kind of keeps you honest, like you, you can get sued as a board member for breaching fiduciary duty. So it's not just a matter of like, oh, well, yeah, I'm a good boy. I promise I'll, I'll do my best. You know, like if you're not doing the right thing, you are exposing yourself to getting sued. Um, so that's definitely keeps you focused on trying to make sure you're doing everything right and, and managing that balance as well as you can. But the way I rank things, like when I am on a board, it's like all the shareholders come first. And protecting the management team or supporting the management team, I shouldn't say protecting, supporting the management team as well as I can come second. And then third is looking after my interests and, you know, on behalf of my investors for you know, my firm's shareholding in that order. But there is Absolutely. that tension across all three. Yeah. Seems like a tough balancing act there. Um, so kind of to pivot off of that, could you explain how board membership is determined and then maybe succession after new rounds come in, that kind of stuff? 
Mm -hmm. The boards typically reflect the the capitalization table, the cap table as it's known, which basically is just the percentage of like what the list of all the shareholders and what how much uh, what their ownership stake is in the company. So um, that's broadly the way things work out. So in a very early company, if the first round of investment comes in, you know, the VCs, or I should say the new investors normally have between 20 and 30% of the equity, sometimes a bit more, depends on how much the company raises. And then the founders have the other, call it two thirds. So in those early boards, it's usually two seats for the management team or the founders. And then there's one for the investors. And then as the company raised more money, the, um, the board composition changes a bit where you start to add more seats for the investors. Um, maybe the founders lose a seat or they keep their two seats, but then more seats are added. And then an independent, like the normal after a company's raised its second round of capital, there's usually five people on the board where it's two from the management team or founding team, two from the investors. And then you'll have one independent director who usually is nominated by the founders. And it's usually someone that is like a, someone from an adjacent industry or the same industry that we're in that you feel like can add value to the company to you know help open new doors, help with marketing, um, help with strategy. Um, you know, I have a board that is focused on e-commerce and we're filling that independent role with someone that they have a ton of data and we're bringing in someone that's like on the AI data side that can help us focus on data monetization. Um, which is an opportunity for the company that we haven't nailed yet. So we're bringing in a board member that has a lot of experience with that. So a lot of that, that board seat of that open spot will be used to kind of plug a strategic hole of the company. And then how it evolves over time. Like my goal is to come off the boards. I don't want to be a board member forever. I rarely want to be a board member more than five years. Um, if I, if things are going right, my companies are kind of progressing and those board seats that I just talked about, that five person board, and you know, there may still be two seats for the investors, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the same investors are going to hold those investor seats. So as the company are raising like their A round or B round, like the, the usually it's the person who's writing the biggest check in that newest round will take someone else's board seat. So hopefully by the B round, I'm off the board. Uh, of the companies. That's a sign that my companies are raising capital. And that's when I usually move into an observer role. Or sometimes it's even if they do a larger A round, like that's happened on two of my companies recently. One is a Chicago-based business in the cybersecurity area called Network Perception. Yeah, I just moved to an observer role several months ago after they raised 15 million bucks, uh, which is great. I was very psyched to, for that to happen. That's a sign of progress. It's like when you're, as a parent, your kid's going off to college, you're like, okay, we're succeeding here. And get got them out of the house. Um, that's that's the goal. Yeah, absolutely. That that makes a ton of sense. And kind of as a board member, um, especially now, like the current macroeconomic environment um, is definitely unique and, and poses its own challenges. Um, so, have have you worked with your portfolio companies to position them for a possible recession? And um, maybe you could provide some insight, like having been in the industry for over 20 years, um, if there are any lessons you learned from from past market cycles, maybe like the financial crisis in 08 or, or even the COVID yeah. pandemic. Um, yeah. Yes. I mean, um, the main thing, yes. So with all of the companies, we were trying to be as proactive as possible of getting them to pare back on their expenses and their burn rate. Um, just for everybody, I'm just making it clear, like, look, you need to make your capital last as long as possible. 
we could be entering, you know, or we will be entering a rough patch and it's going to be really hard to raise, you know, the environment that we've been in where it's been pretty easy if you're performing decently, that there's going to be more money waiting for you in that next round and at a higher valuation, that world has ended, like it disappeared. And it's going to be very different going forward where it's going to get really hard to raise money and the expectations, like the the bar will has is going to be raised for how well you need to be performing as a business to even get the capital um, and valuations are going to come down. So it's like all these bad things are happening. So stay out of the market as long as possible. So, you know, we were working with companies tactically on like, you know, it, it's, it's easy to say, Hey, cut your costs. But when you, when that, what that means is you're talking about a company that may have 50 employees and you need to go through it and be like, all right, let's look at the org chart. Let's look at what work we're trying to do. And we know we need to eliminate 20 people out of the, organization, you know, which, which 20 are they and how is the business still going to function after that? And it's kind of going, helping the management team go person by person and rethinking how they do what they do. And in some cases, it's just telling them, look, we're going to do less. We're just going to, we're not going to try to do so much and we're going to go slower and it's okay if we're not growing as fast, but we need to be able to ride this out. So coaching them through that and it's a very iterative iterative process, just bringing the cost down. But the main one for all the startups is, is salaries. It's, it's over, it's, you know, staff. So we need to cut staff. An area that I found it's interesting where I got the most resistance from my companies was on them raising prices. And, you know, I feel like we're in this inflationary environment where prices are going up for everything. All of us as consumers are feeling it. Um, but yeah, so many of my companies weren't raising their prices along the way. I'm like, look, this is of all the times it's easy to raise prices. It's now because like the prices are going up for everything. Like we, we need to be doing that. And, you know, that's part of this helping ride out the, this storm, you know, cause it's not just a matter of cutting your costs, but if you can bring in more revenue uh, from your existing customers, um, and then you're getting more revenue from incremental customers, that's extending your cash runway too. But I had almost every single company was resisting raising prices. It's funny because they, I just feel like it's going to be hard to win new customers. But a lot of times, if if they're providing a really valuable service, and most of them are, they can do that. And and it's, we so we work with them on negotiating um, on how to get that done with their customers. Um, we also would get really hyper focused on unit economics. I know some of your other guests on your pod have talked about that a lot. Um, and it's just really critically important. But in fact, just dealing with this with one of my portfolio companies now, where we've done this really thorough analysis, and we realized that like 38 of their customers were actually like, we're, we're, break, we're either making no money or pr- they're probably even costing us money. In fact, very likely costing us money, depending upon how we allocated some of our customer support costs. And it's like, look, Yes, our revenue is going to decrease, but let's fire these customers or if not fire them, let's try to raise prices on them aggressively. And if they don't go for it, it's totally fine if they walk away because they're actually hurting us. Um, But taking the time to go through that and um, it's not even so much taking the time as much as kind of the insistence like, hey, we need to go through this. Uh, It's not just about top line revenue that you can be judged on. Like we need to look at the whole picture and unit economics are really important. We have these really crappy customers. We need to get rid of these people. And then there's some other small things that, that we get involved with, like helping them renegotiate their leases if they have office space. Like there's some things that you can do where it's like by you can, you can alter the payment periods. If people sign up for a three-year lease, sometimes 
you can say, all right, you go back to the landlord and say, let's make it a four or five year lease, but we're going to drop our monthly payment by, you know, 50% or whatever. It was like things that you can do to help stretch cash um, that we've worked with our companies on that we did back in 2008, 2009 timeframe um, to work with the companies to do that. And then the last piece is um, just really helping the customer, our, our firms understand that they really need to th rethink their own sales cycle and their sales motion with customers. Cause like their customers are in a recession too, or at least they're going to potentially going to be in one. So the, their priorities are changing. So whatever it took to win a customer th three months ago is going to be different three months from now, you know, like that customer has, they're looking at their budgets too, and they're getting tighter with what they're going to spend on. So you're not just competing. If you're a cybersecurity business, you're not just competing against the other cybersecurity companies for those dollars out of that company. You might be competing against the HR software or the marketing optimization software or like whatever limited money that that company is going to invest into IT in that year. Like that's what you're competing against now. So the way you position your value prop of what you're doing needs to be different. It's not just like, oh, we're better than cybersecurity company B. It's more like, no, you got to talk about return on investment. And what money are you saving for these businesses? Um, or what incremental revenue are you helping drive for these companies that, you know, something else that they're looking at um, investing in may not. So helping push that mindset, like, hey, it's not just about you. You're not just in a vacuum. Like you need to put yourself in the minds of your customers in a way like they're acting, they're going to be acting differently for the next 12 plus months than you've seen before. So coaching companies through that is some of the kind of post recessionary stuff. I mean, I've been through, this is my third kind of down period that I've been through. So I've learned some lessons along the way, but definitely still learning because this one's different. You know, this is 2008 was, you know, kind of a, that was just like, uh, there was like a lit meltdown across the board. You know, this is more inflationary driven and there's other things. I don't know. This is a weird one, uh, obviously. And we're not even technically still in the recession like the most talked about recession ever that hasn't quite happened yet. We've been talking about this for like 15 months. Um, so it's, it's weird, but there are definitely headwinds and you're seeing it. I mean, in the news with the big, you know, job cuts at Facebook or Google, Microsoft, and like there, are, there are a lot of changes happening. So there's something going on, especially in the tech space. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you're right on it. It is a weird and, and unique uh, kind of economic standpoint we're at, we're at right now. And, Really appreciate that insight into uh, how uh, you're kind of trying to work with companies to get through uh, the, the next coming monster or years or whatever, whatever it may be. But uh, that, that's really good stuff. And I guess like to take a step back then from from looking at as your role as a board member for, for these companies. Um, I was wondering if you could walk us through your thought process and de decision to leave venture capital for a little bit to to join Mofi's management mm -hmm. team and mm -hmm. maybe how that time that you spent at Mofi and and taking a deep look at the inner workings of, of a business has helped you to become a better investor and board member because of it. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, so Mophie was one of my investments when I was at Berengia. So I was on the board for a couple of years and it grew really rapidly from you know, barely any revenue to like uh, 50 million in about three years. And I was getting more involved as a board member, just helping doing all the stuff we've been talking about. And the two founders asked me one night after a board meeting, um, they're like, hey, will you just join us and help us do all the stuff that you were talking about at the board meeting? 
And for me, that was pretty interesting because, um, well, one, as I mentioned at the beginning on my, like how I got into venture capital, I didn't actually mean to get into venture capital in the first place. I wanted to be on a startup team. So this got me a chance to work um, at a startup again, uh, or to potentially work at a startup. And it was one that I liked a lot. I liked the founders. It was a rocket ship. It was growing super fast. And then, you know, the other element was at Berengia, their investment strategy was um, changing a bit and getting more uh, later stage. And I was more interested in early stage investments. They were starting to pass on some, when I was at Berengia, you know, kind of in the years leading up to it, they were passing on some stuff that I thought was really exciting and some things that ended up being actually monster winners. Fortunately, I was able to do one of them myself uh, and it worked out really well. But, um, you know, I was like, gosh, you know, I, I wasn't as happy with the strategy direction that we were going at Berengia. And then, and you guys will experience this, experience this when you get a little bit older, but I just turned 40 at that time. And you get a little bit more reflective of life. You're like, all right, I'm kind of entering the second half of my career. Like, is this, you just get more, you start questioning everything. Like, is this what I want to be doing for the rest of my life, my work life, you know, like the second half of my career. And, and so I was like, you know what, I was looking at maybe leaving Berengia, joining a different firm, the Mofi founders asked me to come on board and I always wanted to work at a startup. And then lastly, when I was working at Mofi or uh, at Berengia, I was in um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And um, you know, Mofi had moved its headquarters to Southern California where I actually grew up and my family's out here. So then that was the last reason it got big. Moving to Mofi got me to uh, come to Southern California where I'm very happy to be now. So there were a number of reasons why I decided to leave, but almost all personal. Um, but I'm so glad that I did because you taught asked about Michael, like, you know, making yourself a better investor. I am, I know I'm a much better investor for having had the Mophie experience that I did. Um, just being part of a company that scaled. I mean, in the three years that I was helping run it, we went from 50 million in revenue to 250 million in revenue. We went from about 50, 60 employees to over 300. We went from, you know, a company that had a tiny office in Kalamazoo and a small office uh, in Irvine, California, to one that was global. We had offices all over the world, we had like 100 people in China and Hong Kong alone. Um, it just became a, like a beast. And being part of that and helping scale that up uh, was a, it was an exhausting but fascinating experience. I learned a ton. And it's really helped me when I'm assessing companies really think through the scalability issues of a business and not just like the limitations of a company to be able to grow and quickly, um, but also thinking about the founding team and their ability and potential flexibility to be in a situation where the company is changing that quickly and the team's having the flexibility to um, to change their roles. Because um, you know, when you're a founder at first, like you're kind of in charge of everything and everyone's reporting to you. But as the company is growing and growing quickly, you need to develop uh, an organizational structure where, you know, you have managers basically or you know vice presidents kind of who are then reporting to you you can't have like every person in the company reporting to you indefinitely like at some point you need to create the structure so you need the structure of the team and then you need the structure of like repeatable processes and that'd be the area that i feel like i've learned the most when i'm looking at companies or um or trying to understand their ability to scale it's identifying processes that can be repeatable and scalable it's like some of these processes are just around like sales like how do you win new customers are you just like only winning customers from people in your network who are basically you're, you're selling to your friends or what's the process for bringing in people who have never heard of your business before and doing that in a scalable way or being able to scalably train up new people to sell 
um, like, or do you just have one rock star seller who's just crushes it? And then every other person you hire in like sucks, um, you know, trying to find a way where you can have a repeatable means of scaling up is important. So those are some of my big lessons that I learned from Mophie, but there, there are a ton, <laughs> but I'll stop there. No, absolutely. It sounds like they're definitely a valuable experience and a lot of, a lot of really, really valuable lessons learned. And I remember back in the day, Mophie was, was like the biggest thing. Everyone had their, their Mophie phone cases that like had the yes. hardware with them. Um, so that, that's awesome and funny work there. Yeah. Thanks for buying one. Yeah. Absolutely. Or, or thanks to your parents. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. And so like, obviously you have this experience, like working on a management team, investing in, in these type of companies, uh, and, and startups and, and working as a, as a board member for all these startups. So I was just curious, have you ever started considering your own business and maybe why or why not? And, um, yeah. maybe an another fun question, like if, if you could start a business today, uh, what industry or, or what kind of company would you start? Oh man. Well, on the, did I consider it? I only seriously considered starting my own business one time and it's kind of silly cause it was silly business. So I was, it's when I was living in London and I had just started at Saffron Hill Ventures and I still had this startup bug, you know, I wasn't just like wedded to being a VC yet and living in London and being a Southern Californian who likes his uh, Mexican food. I was struggling with the fact that you could not get a burrito in London at all. And I thought like, this is a problem that needs to be solved. There's too many, you know, there's Americans over here and I think British people and all the, you know, London's a very cosmopolitan city. Like there needs to be basically Chipotle in London. And there wasn't, this is in the early 2000s. So I looked at starting a business and I'm from a town called Rancho Cucamonga, California, which is a funny name, but I was going to call this business Cucamonga, which, um, and to, to basically be Chipotle in London. And I went, I got pretty far down the process of, um, of launching this business. I was like looking at properties, um, but, and talking to people in the industry really understand, cause I had never run a food business before, but I'm like, all right, what, what's it, what does it take? But luckily the two, two things deterred me from doing it and it prevented me from being the burrito king of London. Uh, so one was, um, yeah, I, one was simply that Starbucks at that time was just starting their global expansion. And they were starting to buy up like every single basically small, well-located retail spot in London. Uh, and they were competing with other coffee shops, so they were super aggressive. And what that did was it, it bid up the prices so much for all the real estate. And I'm talking about unit economics. It, that was breaking my model. When I was looking at what – I would have to sell a shitload of burritos for this to be remotely interesting, basically, because of Starbucks. I would, And it was just like – Every week I'd go back and the prices were going up. I'm like, forget it. This is just not going to work. And then the other reason was I talked to some guys that actually were founders of some chains in London uh, of like one was a juice bar and you know, some other kind of similar fast food ish sort of concepts. And I just, you know, I took one of these guys out to drinks and at the end of the night I was like so depressed because like this guy was so unhappy he was just had a horrible lifestyle. You know, he's like, it just, it, it's a grind. And I just learned it was, it's a huge grind, really long hours, not great hours. You have high churn of employees. People are trying to steal from you. It's largely cash, cash business, all of these things. And I was like, Oh my God, no, I, that's not how I want to, I got to find a better idea. So, but I, I got pretty far down the line with becoming the burrito king of London, but it didn't happen. That's so I stuck a, with venture capital and it's worked out. <laughs> gotcha that's an awesome story seems like kind of fun little experience to, to throw in there tell tell the kids and stuff um 
So I guess like one more deep question about the investment process mm -hmm. uh, for a venture capitalist. So obviously early stage investing, there's an added risk. These companies don't really have a proven business model um, sometimes. And so I was wondering if you could walk us through how you minimize this risk throughout the due diligence process, the investment process to kind of, um, yeah, minimize this risk and, and find ways to make these companies, these investments successful along the way. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there we're investing so early. There are there's nothing but risk <laughs> early on, so it's hard. And um, like the financial forecasts and things are things that like we don't look at very much because they're we know that they're wrong, and it's just a matter of like how wrong they are, and they're usually insanely wrong. Um, we do look at them to try to understand. I talk about unit economics, but just try to understand the structure of the business. Like, how will they make money? And is there a path for this? Is there a path to profitability? I do want to look at that uh, and looking at how things can scale up and what kind of overhead and people costs is required for that. But the three main three buckets that we look at for risk, the ones that I think about just kind of mentally, there are so many to look at, but I bucket them in three, three spots. One is technology risk, market risk, and execution risk. So on the technology risk, it's simply like, does the product work or can the company build what they purport to build? Uh, or what they're trying to build, and is it something that can get integrated well into the the environment that they're trying to sell into? You know, so if they're selling into, um, if it's a fintech company that's selling into um, you know other businesses, like you know, what is the likelihood that how easy is it for the other companies to adopt the fintech technology and not have it completely screw up everything else that they do in their business? Like, is it is it pretty frictionless to bring that tech in? So we will really look at the, so I look at the tech risks and try to evaluate that as well as we can. And a lot of that is done either through just looking at, at the code. And sometimes, you know, I'll involve some people that are way better at that than me um, to look at the product itself. Um, but a lot of it's talking to existing customers or prospective customers and really trying to understand from them like what it would take for them to start utilizing the tech and um, what are the hurdles that are in the way. Um, the market risk is another area that we look at, and that's one that we just try to understand. So when I talk about market risk, it's like the competitors. Um, it's basically like what customers could do if they didn't take on the product. And sometimes, honestly, doing nothing is a very viable solution for these people. And But just really trying to understand the dynamics and, and um, forecast out a couple years, like the trends in those markets. A lot of times, I mean, we love going into markets where there are big tailwinds driving change. I mean, my, my best investment that I made is a company called Duo Security. And Duo, um, in fact, Notre Dame might even use Duo at some point for you guys to log into your accounts. But um, they kind of pioneered two-factor authentication. So like when you get a six-digit code texted to you before you to you know access some account or an app or whatever, they kind of pioneered that. Like they had massive tailwinds behind them when they launched the business to do you know, there was this shift from people doing like accessing an account. They would only do it from a laptop or from a computer. You know, now they had, you know, smartphones where they could do it on the go. And that just kind of changed everything in terms of accessing uh, accounts through mobile devices, whether it's for work or banking or whatever. So they, there was this tailwind where there was going to be this massive change driven by basically smartphones that was pushing the industry and pushing them and their business. Like if we can find some markets where there are big tailwinds like that, we love that. And conversely, if there are headwinds where people are maybe worried about cost 
um, cost cutting. Maybe there's a 800 pound gorilla that's like entering the market. That's going to, you know, Microsoft is kind of famous for this where they bundle their products with something else. And it's like, you know, if they're already on the Microsoft platform, like, are they going to use your one thing um, that Microsoft's offering for free? It's like, we're trying to forecast out those market risks ultimately of like tailwinds and headwinds of how um, the, the company that you're going to back may succeed and how they may fare in that environment. And the last piece is that execution risk. We really try to evaluate just the management teams that's like, can they do what they say they're going to do? So ideally, if they've, you know, if they're 40 years old or whatever, and they've been working for a while, there's a lot you can dig into their background and you can do a lot of references. We do a ton of back, you know, reference checks on the founders, people that have worked with them before. But if it's a younger founder, there's not much to go on. So honestly, I'll even look into stuff of like, you know, what'd you do in college? If did you played sports, like were your team captain, you know, where you focus someone who's focused on winning and, um, you're, we're competitive and try to really dig into like, does this person have like real grit and can they grind it out? Cause being a startup founder is hard and you know, get into situations where they've had to deal with adversity and how they handled it. And like that comes to some of the execution risk. Um, it's one, like they may technically be able to do something, but did they have the fortitude to see it through? And honestly, that's the hardest part. And it's the hardest part to judge um, to get that right. Um, Cause it's, everyone says that they want to do it um, and they have the ability, but um, once they're kind of actually in there, like as Mike Tyson says, you know, everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. And, um, you know, once you get punched in the face, it's like, you know, you, you don't know until someone that's happened to them. And it's like, how do they react and respond? Um, so that's one of the hardest things to figure out is the execution risk, especially at our earlier stage that we invest in. But those are the three main buckets we look at. Awesome. Thank you for explaining that in a way that was super understandable for us. And I'm, I'm sure our audience will also appreciate that. Okay. So now we're moving on to our rapid fire section. So these are just five right. quick questions and then you hit us with your, uh, your quick answers. So question one is what do you consider to be the best day of your life? Yes. So I'm going to cop out. I have two answers here because one is the one that it's genuine but the other one gives gives still gives me goosebumps. Uh, so I, my wedding day, I have to say, is my best day of my life. It's just, you know, it, it's one of the things. I had everyone who was important to me there for that day. It was an awesome celebration, and it's like kicked off the best part of my life. Uh, so that was great. But the other one is November second, twenty sixteen, which is the day the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. And I'm sorry, Michael, you're a St. Louis Cardinals guy, uh, I'm sure. So this you, you didn't like that. But uh, but you guys have won plenty of World Series. Uh, but like I didn't think I would live to see the Cubs win a World Series. I've been a huge Cubs fan since I was five years old. I was born in the Chicago area and lived there until I was 13 before moving to California. And uh, so I'm still a huge Cubs fan. And that, I mean, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. I, I, that was amazing. Yeah, no, I just I just got goosebumps when you brought that up. I'm actually my dad's from Chicago, so I was raised a, a Chicago Cubs fan. Um, oh, okay. So that was, that was one of that had to be hard living in St. Louis oh, as a yeah. Cubs fan. Oh, it's been yeah, it's been tough. I've uh, I've gone through it, but uh, no, that was that was definitely fun. After after Cardinal, the Cardinals have had all, all those uh, World Series, it's nice to finally get one and and rub it in their yeah. faces a little bit. Uh, so no, that, that was awesome. Yeah. And uh, so th then I guess the next rapid fire question we have for you is. If you could have a 30-minute conversation with anyone in history, who would it be? Yeah, I would say Leonardo. I mean, it would be a ton, but I would say Leonardo da Vinci. And he might be a hard guy to converse with, especially since they don't speak Italian. But uh, 
you know, this was a guy who was just like so insanely visionary and had this depth of understanding that was like just so many layers ahead of everybody else at his time, even for now. And, um, you know, and he's obviously so creative and had this insane attention to detail. And so in my job, you know, trying to look around corners and see into the future and have this depth of understanding is something I'm, I'm trying to do all the time. And so if you could help me shortcut some things, that'd be great. And, um, and you know, that attention to detail and like really honing in on everything and understanding how everything works so thoroughly is something like an area, a personal weakness, an area that I want to work on and get better at. So if you could help me in some shape or form with that, I think that'd be awesome. But I mean, like what, what a, what a guy, like just such a, an amazing person and the, the breadth of, of his interest and understanding is just be so awesome. 30 minutes would not be enough, but it'd be great. Absolutely. No, that's, that's awesome. And I guess coming from, from an uh, interesting background in, in your education, studying government and sociology, what was maybe the most impactful co- class you took in college? Yeah. So for me, honestly, it wasn't something at, at, because I did this government degree and was focused on politics, like my undergrad, I, I like, I couldn't think of a class like that was super impactful for me, but at business school, for me, it was my marketing class. And for me, that was one that just like, it was just such an, an uh, like a, my mind exploded sort of thing where I just didn't appreciate how just the complexity of marketing and every, all how, um, metric driven it could be and just um, how analytical you could get with the marketing and really understanding and the importance of segmenting customers and targeting brands in certain ways. And I don't know, like I used to think it was like, Hey, let's just make a funny commercial and we're going to sell a lot of stuff. Like that's kind of what I thought marketing was. And then when I got in the depth of marketing, it, it was something I was super excited about. I totally geeked out on. Um, it was like a big thing. I focused on the rest of my time at business school was kind of entrepreneurship and marketing, but that was the thing that I enjoyed the most. It was like absolutely. such an, an eye, like a mind expander for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I use I, it a lot today. Like every day yeah. I'm looking at business and dealing with companies. It's like, I, I call upon those skills and insights all the time. Yeah, I can imagine. I think that's a common misconception with marketing. I think for me too, like I had to take a marketing class last semester and I was like, oh, it's just like ads and, and stuff. But I think there's definitely yeah. a lot more that goes into it and a, a, lot of, a lot of layers. So that's, that's awesome. So the next, um, the next rapid fire question we have for you is what is your favorite weekend activity in California? Yeah. So it's going to be stereotypical, but it's surfing. Uh, so I even did it yesterday morning, uh, and I'll do it tomorrow. Um, but definitely love to surf here in Newport or Huntington, or if I I get the chance down in San Onofre. Uh, but I also love like doing family sports with my family or like sports with my family. We've got, I've got four kids and uh, whenever we can get like a family's basketball or soccer game going like on a weekend, that be one of my other favorites. And then, you know, if I can go out and see like a rock concert or something like that at night, like that would be a perfect day. Surf in the morning, hang with the family in the day, concert at night. That'd be, awesome. that'd be the dream. That's awesome. Yeah, I can't say I've surfed before being from the Midwest, but definitely get that. The family activities, me, me and my family are big pickleball fans. So. All right. Yeah. We'll go ahead and play that and play that a lot. Um, and it'll so. Fun. Yeah, very fun. So the, the final rapid fire question we have for you is how do you keep up to date with, with trends in your industry and in tech? And are there any resources you could recommend to our audience? Yeah. I mean, the main way I do honestly is like through just talking to other founders and you know, I'm getting pitched all the time from founders. And honestly, I've learned so much from everybody in those pitches, you know, cause there, there's some insights to their industry that they have. Um, 
So, you know, talking to founders and talking to other venture capitalists and understanding what they're looking at and what they're seeing in their portfolio. I mean, that that's my best way of learning and keeping up on things, but that's not very helpful for your audience. So, um, you know, I do listen to some podcasts uh, and then there's some folks on Twitter that I follow. Some of the podcasts I, I particularly like are the, um, the all in pod um, invest like the best. I think it's Patrick O'Shaughnessy. I think is his name. Um, there's one called the full ratchet, which is uh, focused on venture capital. Um, there's another one. I focus on business to business software. So there's a business called faster. Um, they have really great content. Uh, and then there's another guy who's super analytical and has good little anecdotes called Nathan Lotka. And he has good stuff too. Um, but if I'm trying to like learn, keep up on industry things, those are good podcasts. And then there's a bunch of, I don't spend a lot of time on Twitter. Probably, I probably should spend more time there, but I'm just pretty busy. I don't know. The people who spend a lot of time on Twitter, I'm like, I don't know what they do all day. Cause like I, I actually have a lot of work to do. <laughs> I don't have time for that. But um, people I like on Twitter, um, it's the founder of Saster, Jason Lundkin. Um, there's another guy named David Scock who does, uh, he's at Matrix Partners. He just puts up like good, he doesn't post a lot, but he has a lot of good research in our industry. Another guy, Tomas Tunguz, um, who's great. He does a lot of great research. He was a prolific blogger, kind of doing blogging before podcasts were things. Um, and then there's a guy who does it for public equities named Gavin Baker, who I like a lot, who follows tech stocks in particular. He's got his own little tech hedge or hedge fund focused on tech. He posts a lot of great stuff. Um, so uh, yeah, those are folks that I follow. And then David Sachs is another guy who um, he does a lot of political stuff, which is fine. Interesting. He's very conservative and I'm not, uh, but um, so it's not so much that stuff. Although I find it interesting, his, his viewpoints on that, but um, he, his firm who I've invested with and I've actually sat on a board with him before he posts a lot of great research that they have throughout their portfolio which is focused on SaaS, so they do a great job and i respect him and their firm a lot so he has some good stuff awesome no, that's that's all great stuff and thank you again for coming on with us today i think that's all we had had for you but this has been awesome uh, to, to gain a little insight into venture capital and also what it means to be a board member um and, and and hear about your interesting insight and experiences so thanks thanks again jeff for joining us today cool thanks michael thanks james i appreciate it All right, everyone, that about wraps up our conversation with Jeff Bokan of Okapi Venture Capital. We hope you enjoyed our conversation on Jeff's unique career path and his insight into the venture capital space. We also hope you're able to learn about the role that board members play in VC-funded companies and the value that they can add to the companies they oversee. If you'd like to learn more about venture capital, I would encourage you to check out a couple of our past episodes. First, I would recommend listening to our episode entitled Breaking into VC with Caroline Yeager, who's a senior associate at Vitalize Venture Group. Second, I would steer you towards an episode entitled Supercharging Startups and Corporate Innovation with Kristen Pacifico, Manager and Venture Capitalist at TechNexus. These podcasts are great resources for all you trying to pursue careers in venture capital and early stage investing. Whether you're looking to learn more about the industry or just hear the stories and advice of leading professionals in these roles. So as always, if you have any guests or topics that you would like us to cover in the future, please feel free to reach out to us on our website. And with that, Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.